Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is Joshua Kahn with your news. Assembly Member Benson is introducing a new bill next week that will allow Aristic County to use information from a recent highway collision survey to help lower the speed limit for a stretch of Highway 95 near a residential area. Ludlow residents say they have been looking for a way to address the issue for years, and they gauge that this change can't come soon enough. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. What up, constant readers? And today, we are hitting part two of Pet Cemetery, And Ben is leading our discussion. But Ben, Ooh. before we get to you, I know, uh, I know I always throw and then you guys catch it and you run I'm, with it. I'm ready. I'm I, have, ready. I have something I need to get off my chest about this book. Okay. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was reading this book and I got I, I took to Instagram and I posted the back cover of my book, which it just is a black back cover mm. and it says the most frightening Stephen King book ever written or something to that effect. Yeah. And I posted it and I was like, any guesses on what we're reading next? Immediately responses on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, immediately guessing Pet Cemetery right away. And I was like, wow, I can't believe that so many people feel this way. Because uh, I just started reading where we are now. When I think most frightening, I think of like it. I think of some scary supernatural entity. Man, if I do not agree that this is the most <laughs> frightening book I've ever read. It is the most emotionally frightening thing is I've ever read in my life. Super upsetting. Yeah. Uh, I cried four times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were multiple, multiple times I had to put the book down to keep myself from bursting into tears in the middle of a Starbucks. <laughs> My husband had to hug me and tell me that they weren't real people. <laughs> right. And that's I why I know, but that's why this book is so upsetting. It's the 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 scary part isn't necessarily the the supernatural elements. I mean, yes, they are. There are some really creepy parts, but just the Thinking this much uh, much about death, um, my my brain don't like it. <laughs> uh, Same. I side with Stephen J. Fry. Thanks to denial, I'm going to live forever. Uh, <laughs> I think this. I might have already mentioned this in the first episode, but Stephen King freaked himself out writing this and wasn't going to publish it. Holy shit! And I That's think amazing. Tabitha talked him into it, or he needed a book for some deadline and. There we go. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, I'm, I'm glad. Okay, I'm glad so we're on the glad same page. But I wanted yeah. to throw that out there because it was wrecking me a little bit. It absolutely was. So, readers, uh, in this episode, we're going to be covering chapter 23 to chapter 40, and uh, where we left off, uh, Lewis Creed is a doctor in a small town called Ludlow, Maine. He's just moved uh, with his family. He has met his uh, neighbors across the street, Judd and Norma Crandall, a nice old couple uh, living on uh, Truck Street. Yeah. (laughs) I like it. Truck Street. Truck Street in Ludlow. Yeah. So Lewis has his first day of work at the university and something tragic happens. A young man gets hit really, really hard by a car 
dies in the lobby kind of terribly, says something cryptic to Lewis before he dies, then appears as a ghost to Lewis, takes him to the cemetery, the pet cemetery, and is like, stuff is going to happen later and you got to be strong. Don't go past that, you know, that barrier, the deadfall. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the, I guess the only other really crazy thing to happen in this part <laughs> one is that... <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I I guess. I mean, the, the, really, if you want to get into, oh yeah, his cat comes back to life. Yeah, his church. Ellie's cat dies, and Judge shows Lewis what's beyond the deadfall, and it's the Micmac burial ground. So he buries the cat up there, and uh, that that's where we're at. It's the next morning. Like the uh, the old nursery rhyme, the cat comes back. And uh, is wrong. <laughs> is uh, is wrong. It's uh, graceless, and uh, he hate he won't touch it because it's just gross. It smells bad. Yeah, there's something off about the cat that he can't quite put his finger on. And uh, where we pick up uh, today is the very next morning. It's uh, the morning after Church's burial, and after. Uh, He's come back and Lewis is home alone. Uh, his family is away visiting his wife, Rachel's uh, parents mm-hmm. who Lewis hates. He hates them so much and they hate him. And uh, they call after Thanksgiving and Lewis is scared because he doesn't want to tell Ellie what happened. And he gets a note from Judd. He goes to their house the next morning and Judd has left him a note on the door he and uh, Norma have gone out of town, but he says, basically, I wouldn't rush to tell your little girl about her cat. You'll understand why later. And Lewis's memory of the night before, which I thought was really interesting, is kind of fuzzy, like it was all a dream. The difference between waking and dreaming is kind of fluid when it comes to the, the burial ground. Because in our first part, when Victor Pascal, the ghost of Victor Pascal, visits him, he thinks, oh, this is this is all a dream, even though it feels like he's awake. Everything is so crisp and clear, but he has to be dreaming. And now it's the same thing. It's walking through the swamp, seeing the shadow of something huge, the shadow of the Wendigo in the swamp. It's all becoming fuzzy because it has to be a dream, right? It's too weird to be real, but... <laughs> He's got the proof that it was not a dream. Yeah. There's, there's <laughs> a cat. living, slimy, weird proof. <laughs> and the, that, that afternoon, Church just strolls in and he notices. I love that he notices that like when he starts checking him out, that there's like some bits of something. And he realizes that it's the hefty bag that Church mm-hmm. clawed its way out of the bag that he put it in and then clawed its way out of the grave. I've got a question for you guys. Yes. Um, when... Uh, Rachel and Ellie engage call. Uh, he, of course, lies to them. I mean, nothing happened. He doesn't tell anyone that Church got hit by a car because why would he? Church is right there. And at this point, he thinks to himself the line that Judd and the ghost of Victor Pascal told him. Uh, Man's heart is stonier, Lewis. He... What's the line? He plants what he wants and he grows 
it good. Uh, whatever the <laughs> yeah, line. No, that ten, is it. That's it. it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, a li- he, <laughs> nope, King, it good. King wrote it a little bit better than me. I was paraphrasing. Just a little bit. But um, after he tells this lie, he, Lewis thinks to himself, I wrote down the quote, you would have been a great murderer. <laughs> Which is hysterical. Yeah. Um, and he also mentions that he feels no guilt over lying. My question to you guys is, should he? No, because there's a part of his brain that knows it's going to work, and he knows that Church is going to come back. So he's... Oh, Church is already coming. back. Oh, Church point. is, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he knows He just lies nothing... to his family about it, and he's yeah. like, yeah, that's fine. But he, he did changed. something kind of crazy that I don't think any father can, <laughs> can say he has ever done for his child, Fair. which is bring her cat back to life. <laughs> so he doesn't feel guilty. He feels... I think he feels more like... Did what I had to do. Love my family. Yeah, I, I would agree. I just uh, wanted to get you guys' opinion because <laughs> it's just kind of a, a for Lewis, who we know is uh, kind of a cad, uh, has been in the past that uh, he's actually kind of justified in this one. If you're not going <laughs> to tell her about the prostitute in Chicago <laughs> six years ago, don't tell her about the cat. <laughs> uh, it's a good rule of thumb. Anyway, as all this is happening, uh uh, Lewis's uh, co-worker, Steve Marston's Masterson, Jesus Christ, <laughs> um, Marston House, <laughs> uh, calls <laughs> and invites him out uh, to go to play tennis or something. Yeah. And uh, I only bring this up because when Lewis if, at first turns him down, Steve's response is, come on, Lewis, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Like, that's not a phrase. Outside of The Shining, so they right? live in a universe yeah. where The Shining is a book. But oh, earlier oh <laughs> in the book, Judd mentions that a few years back in a place called Castle Rock, a dog went rabid and killed a few folks. Yep. We this book takes place in a branch of in a level of the tower in which The Shining is a book, but Cujo <laughs> is real. And that's crazy. That is pretty <laughs> insane. I, that that's just a fun little bit. Uh, I made that note too of like what <laughs> I, I, like I wanted to know like is that a phrase that existed? And I didn't I, find any proof that it existed outside of The Shining. Anyway, we go on that night. Uh, Lewis heads over to the Crandall's house, and uh, Norma, who in our last. Uh, section had a heart attack is feeling better uh her arthritis doesn't look as bad she looks really good and healthy quote on that evening less than 10 weeks before a cerebral accident will kill her fucking king (laughs) (laughs) so upset king does this a few times in this book yeah where it's like oh man isn't everything great isn't isn't everyone having a real good time with this character that's on the edge of death? <laughs> and it hits me every goddamn time. What do you guys think about that? Because I was going back and forth, like, do I want that bit of foreshadowing so that as I'm reading the rest of it and things are relatively good, I kind of have that in the back of my mind as this impending doom-like thing, or do I just want to be hit with it like a ton of bricks? I like the impending doom of it mm-hmm. because again he he foreshadows her death like three or four times like this was the last time she was ever in their living room and 
you know, in, in a couple weeks and this thing is going to happen. And it's for a character that we've already seen have, a, you know, a heart attack. And we know she's fragile. And, and this book is about death. Like knowing mm-hmm. that a major character death is coming is really unnerving. Mm-hmm. And this whole book has such an ominous feel to it. The whole book from the very beginning, at least for me, I have just felt even through all of the the good times moving in all um Ellie starting school there's just this this feeling of dread yeah. something bad is coming and when it does it's going to be really really bad and uh th- this tactic king has is pretty fucking effective yeah. if you ask me <laughs> um so they're talking Norma goes to bed and Judd tells the story of the first time he went to the burial ground that was a i love that story um so judd is a child and he has his dog spot and spot spot gets sick right isn't that what's wrong with him yeah he, mm-hmm. he gets sick and his dad shoots his, him. Yeah, his dad shoots him old yeller style <laughs> and judd is like just looking for a place to be alone and uh, he is come upon by Stanny B, who is just a little off. Is kind of like what the everybody town's says. Crazy. Yeah, he, yeah, he's a drunk. Yes. Yeah. And he tells Judd that he knows a place that he can fix his dog, and that he will be like outside his house that night. Like I will throw a rock at your window if you don't answer it. I'm gone, and your dog's dead forever. So if you want this to happen, you're going to come out here and we're going to do this thing. He he does. He shows up. And just as Judd thinks that that Stanny B is never going to show, he hears the rocks. He sneaks out. They take the dog up to the Micmac burial ground and bury it. And just like church, the next day, Spot comes running up. But he's still got like there's a patch of fur that's missing from where he was shot and he's just a little off just like church was but he was he was still a good dog and but he he smelled like bad meat all the time and he felt odd to the touch and and his parents knew yeah that was my yeah. when his dad cuz like my first reaction was what's his dad going to say when his dad gets home and sees him out washing the dog outside and his dad just walks up and he's like who told you I think he's he's like, you need to give that dog a bath. He's probably dirty from crawling out of the ground <laughs> in the woods. I thought that Stanny B's history was really interesting, too, because he knows about the burial ground because his family goes back generations, like long enough that they knew the Micmac Indians back in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And, his, and they told Stanny B's grandfather they stopped using the burial ground because a Wendigo soured the land there. And they told stories about it and that it would touch human beings and give them a taste for evil, basically a taste for flesh. And Judd and Lewis talk about how that story was probably made up by the Indians to justify some brutal winters where they had to resort to cannibalism. And so then they probably buried the bones there and then they were just like, this ground is not good anymore. Uh, if I remember correctly from the uh, the lore, Wendigo lore I know, I knew it as Wendigos, uh, if you eat, if you resort to cannibalism, you will turn into a Wendigo. 
and Wendigos will uh, march through the woods so for so long and so uh, furiously that they wear their feet off and they walk on bloody stumps. <laughs> we don't yeah, get any and, of the of the lore of that. Oh, it's they're just so goddamn scary. Yeah, and now Wendigo that I'm thinking about creepy. it, I might have uh that that might all just be from the monster manual. Now that I'm <laughs> <laughs> now that I'm thinking yeah, about why I right. know so much about the Wendigo. Do you guys think that that's what Judd saw? Because when he's telling oh, Lewis the story, yeah. he says he mm-hmm. saw something out there, but he won't talk about what. Oh, 100%. Yeah, he says uh, – and he says something that Stanny B told him that I don't think he told Lewis is that when he was first taken out there, he says, don't speak to anything if it should speak to you. Yeah. <laughs> that That's so creepy. Is very scary. So they talk about the, you know, if something says something to you, don't don't answer back, especially when they're walking through that that section between the pet cemetery and the mm-hmm. burial ground to the steps. And it just like the creatures in the mist that they never see that he never sees the creatures like he sees the shapes moving mm-hmm. like because there's that that low that like that low fog, but they never see anything like coming out of it but it's kind of that same thing like maybe like these creatures are otherworldly mm-hmm. and especially in this specific area that he gave him so many warnings about not looking down don't stray from the path that we're going on to that that's kind of a similar uh a similar supernatural existence hmm. oh yeah uh i i think last the last episode we talked about Oh uh, well, I we wanted the the it to be a thinny that they're walking <laughs> yeah. through. So it's very much possible. possible. Anyway, so we're we're talking uh or they're talking and Lewis asked Judd what uh at least I was at wondering why? Why did you bring me? Why did you do this? And Judd gives two answers. Bullshit answers. <laughs> well, the first answer I wrote down, he says, uh, why, why did he do it, Judd? And Judd's answer is basically because sometimes dead is better. It, basically, he says, you know, I did it because, I, you know, your your daughter, Ellie, she was uh, real scared to death. And she was real scared that her cat was going to die. But I helped you bring it back because that will show her that uh that it you know she'll see it and be like uh something's wrong with it and then she'll be okay if it dies that's the dumbest reason okay hold on let me rephrase that yes okay (laughs) so i i think that judd is very perceptive and he's picked up on there's this weird thing with rachel and death Mm -hmm. and maybe it's affecting the kids and so he's he says so maybe i did it because when he finally does die Ellie will be sad, but mostly relieved, and she'll learn something about death. She'll learn that death is when the pain stops and the good memories begin. Sure. And and that sounds very nice. And because something in it calls to you once you've been part of it. Sure. You sort of have no control. But you know what would have also taught Ellie that? 
J- just not doing her anything. cat dying. Oh, yeah, her <laughs> cat <laughs> fucking dying. I, I have three cats, like, and I would even after reading this, I'd bury every single one of them. There. <laughs> you're <laughs> a monster. <laughs> we already know you're a lunatic, Sam. That's fine, <laughs> but it, it makes no sense. No. This, this explanation, and that's why I I feel like his second response would basically like. Or maybe sometimes you just have a secret that's so powerful you have to share it. Is that mm-hmm. like and when that makes a hundred percent? Yeah, when sense. somebody tells you something terrible and you're like, I just gotta tell mm-hmm. somebody else. Especially get it out. as close as Lewis and Judd have become. Right. Uh they have this this very close friendship, and it it makes complete sense that Judd first of all, Lewis helped save his wife, and you know, he sees Lewis in pain because his daughter's going to be hurt. That makes way more sense. Well, he, and he says specifically, you do it because it gets hold of you mm-hmm. because that burial place is a secret place and you want to share that secret. And when you find a reason that seems good enough, you justify doing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that night, as they're finishing their conversation, Lewis has one last question. The best question. Uh, <laughs> giving Judd one last reason to lie to him. <sighs> has there... Has anyone ever buried a person in the pet cemetery? No! No! No, 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 no. Don't do that. No one's ever done it. Stop asking why. It's never happened. Get out of my house. Lewis leaves going, I don't think he was telling the truth. (laughs) He was lying to me. It doesn't help. Like, when I read it, I read it. With an exaggerated look of him very clearly lying. Oh, no. no, no. <laughs> nope. Well, didn't he knock over his beer can or something? Yeah. He's so startled yeah. by comically, question. Comically shook. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Lewis stumbles home because at this point he got real drunk. Yeah. Because that's another thing. Every time that they talk about the McMack burial ground, Lewis has to get real drunk <laughs> first. Which... Fair, but he stumbles home and there's this awesome sequence of just him in a dark garage. And this is what this book does so amazingly is nothing fucking scary happens. Nope. But there are these moments. It's a Stephen King moment. Of, oh, and it, is it ever? He, he's drunk and stumbling through his garage and it's pitch black and all he can think of is, Where's the fucking cat? <laughs> and, and he knows his garage, but it's like it's this foreign place to him in the dark. And he, things are not, they don't feel like they are where they should be. And he keeps running into things. There's a point where he thinks to himself, how about a hand? <laughs> and then he thinks, if right now a hand <laughs> reaches out of the darkness and grabs me, I would never stop screaming, <laughs> which is uh, a perfect king moment. It is. And uh, no hand comes out, but only Church, quote, oiled against his ankle like a low eddy of water. Church didn't ask to be brought back. It's not his fault he's creepy now. That, I, I made that note later on when the like it's clear that the entire family basically treats mm-hmm. him like shit. And I was like, man, Church didn't ask for this. Yeah, he gets kicked <laughs> and Yellow stuff. Dicks. I don't like that. So... Now time passes, and Lewis is at the airport ready to pick up his family. I'm sorry. I just keep thinking, pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was weird. He gets his family, and Gage has picked up a virus. And for some reason, he keeps saying pretty and then throwing up everything. I vow, listeners, 
The next time I am going to throw up, I will try my hardest to say pretty <laughs> right before it happens. Please do that. Well, I think that we'll let us know how it goes. The experience. I am, I'll probably choke to death laughing on my own <laughs> This Did you guys think, because they come home and he gets, Gage gets like really, really sick. And Rachel's screaming for Lewis because he sleeps on the, the pullout bed that night so she can sleep in bed with Gage. And he's choking. And... I, I mean, we all know something terrible is going to happen to this family. Did either of you think that this was that moment? I, yeah, I did. I, I It would have been, looking back on it, it would have been weird for it to happen so soon after. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was for sure, like, I know Gage dies. I know that is a thing about I did not cemetery. know that. Oh, oh, Ben. Well, oh, Ben. Oh, I'm so I, sorry. Well, I knew one of them did. Okay. Uh, but yeah. I didn't know who. And we will get there. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, But then that's another Lewis action scene hero moment where he like hears mm -hmm. the screaming, runs up and he handles that business. Before we get to that point, though, they come home from the airport and we learn a couple of things. First, we learn that Ellie had a nightmare while visiting their grandparents on the night of Church's death. Yeah, she dreamed that he died. Which, so does Ellie have The Shining? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it brings up something that Judd asks or mentions later in the book. How far does the Micmacs influence reach? Mm -hmm. I know something. Oh, well, keep to yourself. (laughs) Well, I'm just going to put a teaser out there. Okay. I don't think it's necessarily the burial ground in the way that we think of it reaching. I think it's something else, something mm. related, Ooh. but not interesting. Tease and I, complete. And I don't know if that's part of the book <laughs> I've or been if teased. that's just the <laughs> if that's just the movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, do do okay. You don't like tease. Do we need to bring back <laughs> delicious foreshadowing? Just as soon as I said it, I was like, uh-uh. I don't like that at all. Um, okay, and also. Uh, we learn that Church has started killing mice. That's what Lewis wanted. <laughs> That's true. He didn't want that to be such a, a lazy cat. True, but he is uh, not just killing them, eviscerating them. And leaving them And for leaving Lewis. them places. He keeps putting Church out, and Church keeps finding his way back in. And uh, Ellie doesn't want to sleep with Church anymore, because she smells. always says that he smells. And there's just something so off-putting about him that at first, you wonder if it's just Lewis because Lewis knows. But now that you've seen the whole family interact with them, you, mm-hmm. you realize that it is, it's everyone. Church is fundamentally different. And when Judd was talking to Lewis that next night about the burial ground, he was talking about Spot and how he was a good dog. Like the, he was always a little off, but nothing ever came back mean except for some. Um, Hanratty, the, the yeah, some guy's bull that he drug up there somehow. So that place has even more power than mm. we initially thought. But yeah, his bull came back mean and he shot it two weeks later. Mm. That night, like you said, Ellie uh, is trying to go to sleep and Church is just sitting in her closet. Super creepy. Super, super creepy. And uh, Lewis sees him and freaks out. He's He's scared he says he is quote simply stupidly afraid the way you are afraid when a cloud suddenly sails across the sun and somewhere you hear a ticking sound you can't account for 
which I don't know what that means, but it is <laughs> very terrifying. I'm confused and terrified. Yeah, I don't know what that means, but it's, it's really scary. But as he he's telling Ellie, hey, it's okay. There's nothing to be scared of. He also thinks it was enough to make you wonder how many people were going around with dreadful secrets bottled up inside. Only men who to tend their fields good. Uh, it it just makes you think that made me think about the town of ludlow there are this isn't just judd and lewis's place right there are people all over ludlow that know about the (gasps) micmac burial ground is the entire town of ludlow the pet cemetery wasn't where I was going, but I like it. Uh, so are all those it's, dead pets. Wait, when you around. think about it, aren't we all the pet cemetery? It's true. But how many people in this town have stories similar to what is happening to them? I would also like to point something else out that because here we start kind of making some time jumps. I made a one note about Christmas, and I just said Christmas is adorable, but I'm more sad now. Because you you finally see everything, they're coming back to normal, and everything's mm. fine. And then, of course, they drop another, like, but somebody's gonna die soon. <laughs> it makes it even more sad that we've gotten them ramped all the way back up to peak happiness. Uh, yeah. And then he slams us down again. Yeah, this, the, over Christmas, it's such a, a idyllic uh, scene of... Lewis and Rachel wrapping presents and uh, having gross married people sex. Sure, <laughs> kicking the cat a couple times. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's really a punch in the gut when um, the next part happens. When we got to this part, I believe was when I texted you guys in the group message saying, I am having a hard time getting through this chapter. This one chapter probably took me a day and a half to read. Oh, wow. Because I just could, I'd get, I'd read three pages and have to put it down and walk away. How did you get through the chapter coming later? Oh, it's, by that time I was, I was drawn in. But like. (laughs) I was dead inside by then. (laughs) Christmas passes and this chapter starts finding out that Norma passes away from a cerebral accident. I, I don't know if I can talk about this, guys. You guys might have to take this over because all of my notes are just tear-stained. <laughs> and, like, I, this destroyed me. I just want to say one thing about it. I found it really touching how Lewis describes Judd in this moment when he's making arrangements and making phone calls and they're sitting at their table and they're having their beers and they're, you know, talking about her and he's... He's so calm and collected and and sad, but just he even makes calls that a lot of people don't think of making in their grief, mm-hmm. just giving, you know, different places a heads up that, you know, they're going to be contacted about arrangements and just made me so sad. Well, I th- what I thought was great here is that Judd gives himself like a 10 minute breakdown, like he just grieves and just kind of like gets all the crying, gets all that those feelings out. And then snaps into action. And I feel like that is because death is fundamentally different for Judd Mm -hmm. because he knows sometimes dead is better. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that is 
the way he handles it is coming back to kind of what he said about um, Ellie being able to hand handle death better because she'll she'll be relieved. He has that because he's been through this already. Mm-hmm. So he it's easier for him to move to this point. It doesn't mean he loved her any less by any means, oh. but it just means he knows this is it. This is the only option. And if I don't do this immediately and do it now, I'm going to be tempted. Mm-hmm. It's touching, too, because they've been together so long and he's he's had a full and a good life with her. And Lewis even notes to himself when he's looking at him and observing him, he doesn't have that sort of transparency that you see with older married couples. When one dies, you just know mm. weeks, months later, the other one's going to follow. Yeah. I wrote the the uh, old couples dying hand in hand due to, quote, some deep inner urge to catch up with the one gone. God, Devin I, better die with me. <laughs> I th- my my note is uh, some deep inner urge to catch up with the one gone, and now I'm openly crying in a Starbucks. That was, <laughs> that was my note. Um, and it was it was at this point it was actually the quote that he's on the phone making these arrangements, and Judd is on the phone with the the Undertaker, and he just says, "Would they have someone wash her hair?" I, oh my god, I almost started crying right now. Who? Uh, that's the saddest fucking thing I've ever read. And I, that was the point where I closed the book and said, I will read this tomorrow. <laughs> because now we're going to get sad again. Oh boy, are we? Because we get to find out what happened to Rachel's sister Zelda. So Rachel takes the death badly, takes Norma's death badly. And she obviously does not go to the funeral. And she's trying to hide how she's handling this from Ellie. But... Ellie's kids are smart, you guys. (laughs) From working with them, I can say that. Kids are perceptive. They know Mm -hmm. their shit. Lewis has a father-daughter chat with Ellie because she asks him if Mrs. Crandall go to heaven. And he's honest with her. He tells her a little bit about religion and faith. And I really like the way he does that because he doesn't try to tell her what to believe or what's right. He just kind of lays things out for her. And he lets her follow whatever path feels natural to her. I wrote down, that's some good-ass parenting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting for two reasons. The first, because a few chapters ago, we got this Christmas scene where Rachel and Lewis go through all this trouble to sneak the the presents down by the tree and drink the beer that Ellie left out for Santa. Great kid. And (laughs) they even make fake boot tracks in the, Mm -hmm. the fireplace so it looks like someone came down the chimney. And they do this because she was starting to lose her faith in Santa. So that all that work they put in for Santa Claus and then kind of how he handles the religious aspect, I just thought was kind of neat. And then the other reason that I thought it was interesting is because Ellie, when she asks Lewis what he believes, he thinks about how he used to believe that you die and that's it. You're just gone. But ever since Pascal and more specifically church, he doesn't believe that anymore. And he tells Ellie that he believes that they go on. And so Rachel's kind of like, he sees her shadow in the background and he knows that she's listening and her, his honesty with Ellie inspires her to finally share the gruesome details of her sister Zelda's death. We find out that Zelda died of spinal meningitis and Rachel tells this horrible story of the monster her sister became. She was in chronic pain the the disease like crunched her body basically is the like the most visually descriptive way i could describe it and when she describes 
how Zelda acted towards people and who she like who she became through the pain and and feeling almost that Zelda was being almost vindictive about it. Lewis says he comforts her and he's like, that's actually incredibly normal because going being in that much pain all the time does things to your brain. Yeah. Um, it makes people into someone that they were not. And she has no, like she looks at him like, are you serious? Are you yeah. messing with me? And it made me so sad because she is so completely shut herself off from death and grieving and sort of that healthy and natural process that you go through that she doesn't even know things like that. Like, yeah, that's, that's common. That happens, which would have helped her so much. <laughs> yeah. She it would have definitely helped her process. She then tells the story that uh, her parents were gone and she was home alone with Zelda and she was eight years old oh, and she was in the room. And when her sister started choking and seizing and, died in the room with her the note i made after that the two notes i made first lewis thinks why did they leave this eight-year-old child home alone with this incredibly sick girl when they could afford like they're rich they could afford a nurse or something and so the first note i made was i hate her parents as much as lewis does now Mm -hmm. yeah the very next note i made was why does King make me feel like an asshole all the time? <laughs> because directly following that, Rachel basically says, that was a time when we didn't have that kind of money and they couldn't afford for somebody to be there all the time. And so it's like a double whammy because I harped on Rachel so hardcore <laughs> about her her thing with death. Then I got on board with, Fuck her parents for doing this when they could afford it. Then I find out back to back almost how gruesome that death was that she's been carrying around. And that that initial thing of they couldn't actually afford a nurse full time. They definitely could have afforded a nurse for the say, time they were gone. A babysitter. Yeah. That's like still in, bullshit. In your yeah. defense of fuck her parents, fuck her parents <laughs> yeah. for leaving an eight year old alone with. Completely and Zelda angry. was only 10. So yeah. Um, is it even legal to leave your kids home alone well, at that when point, they're both that young? What year was it? That would have <laughs> been, sure fun. Yeah, because this takes place in early 80s. That would have been, what, 20 years before that? So the 60s? 60s yeah. 60s. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so yeah, this, this terrible thing. There's a few details in this story that I, I want to point out because... While I don't have any proof, I know the way King writes, and I would think they are going to become, if not important, at least I would hope called back to. The the callback she she is talking about during Zelda's convalescence that she hated the smell. Mm-hmm. Um and this is such a, a a great detail because you know, smell has so much to do with memory. And she says that she just remembers her room smelling like piss and wild cherry cough drops. And medicine. And yeah, this medicine that she had. And I will be shocked if that (laughs) does not come back later. Yeah, good note. Because of this other thing that, that happens in her when Zelda dies. And this detail is not only so upsetting to us, the readers... It 
almost becomes a it becomes stuck in Lewis's mind, which is uh, when Zelda dies, she falls backwards because she she tries to lift Zelda uh, out of bed because she's coughing and choking. And she's just a little girl and she can't and she falls and she falls backwards and hits a wall and a framed picture of Oz the Great and Terrible. Say it right, Ben. Oz the Great and Terrible. I regret that. (laughs) (laughs) That was my goal. Um, Oz the Great and Terrible, little kid voice, falls and... And she thinks that Zelda, her ghost, has come back. Her ghost of this little girl that hates her sister because her sister is healthy. Because her sister isn't dying. And has come back and attacked her. And she tells Lewis this. And throughout moving on, when death comes, Lewis thinks of it as the coming of Oz the Great and Terrible. It's interesting, too, because when she's talking about thinking her sister's going to come back and get revenge on her for being healthy, when she had tried to lift her, she strained herself so much that she ripped the armpits out of her blouse. And the next day, she's so in so much pain and so sore and so freaked out because she thinks that she has it, that Zelda gave it to her on purpose because her back is all hurt and she does not believe anything other than that until it gradually fades away. Can I lighten things up for a moment? Yeah. Did anybody else notice that at a certain point, Rachel comments about the bag boys junk at the grocery store? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So, so are they in an open marriage? Is that, does that excuse the prostitute? Is that, are they just all, no. Okay. You can look at a bag boys junk, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you said that not like a permission, but you said that to me like a threat. <laughs> I think you're right, somehow. I did. <laughs> Next time you're at the grocery store, you better look at that. You better bag look boys at junk. that junk. No, don't do that. They're all high schoolers. <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, we go on, and Rachel. Th- this is kind of like she says it's like uh, excising a rotten tooth. That she gets through this and. Uh, Lewis has to give her a Valium, but she gets through it and she seems to come to terms with everything, but she still does not go to Norma's funeral. Time passes, a bit of time. Uh, Ellie turns six, uh, Judd's grief slowly dims, um, Gage gets his first haircut, the time passes, he says spring came and it stayed a while. Nice, mm-hmm. nice and good. When we reach March 24th, 1984, the last really happy day of Lewis Creed's life. Fuck my life. Do we need like a trigger warning? (laughs) We might, because... This is a rough chapter coming up. This is bad. He talks about this day. It's... There's nothing really, I'd say, special about the day. You know what it reminded me of, though? hmm. Did you guys think of Joyland? Joyland. Yep. Mm, yeah, yeah. The, the kite, kite flying. flying scene there. Yeah, it, it's very similar to mm-hmm. to um, Devin uh, and Mike, Doug and uh, <laughs> Doug and Milton try, from uh, Joyland. <laughs> Lewis is home alone with Gage, and Gage has hit the terrible twos, and he's running around. Lewis is getting frustrated, like at the the start of the book, and Gage he finds a marble in his poop, and it's just. <laughs> 
forgot about that. Yeah. Gets, yep. gets mad at Ellie for leaving his marbles where Gage can choke. Uh, but he decides, he's like, I got to entertain this kid. So he gets his kite out. A kite shaped like a vulture. Subtle, Aww. Stephen King. <laughs> um, but they go out to fly this kite. And it's so sweet. It's perfect. It's adorable. They're so happy. And then we get to follow it up with a new death counter. Because at the end of that whole thing, he basically says that it'll be two months until Gage dies. <sighs> and it won't be chills or marbles. It'll be a truck. And my note just says, oh, God, no. That's it. That's that's it. Mine say it won't be marbles. It's a truck. Duh. Mine, <laughs> mine say this kite flying scene makes me feel like I've never really flown a kite before. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I had the same thought. I was like. Is is kite flying actually fun? Like, does anyone fucking care about flying a kite? Outside I did of when Mary, I was a kid. Oh my god, Mary Poppins have, and this. All right, Dairy Public Radio flies a kite together. <laughs> Done. All right, Why? put it on. <laughs> nope, it's happening. I'm putting it on the list of activities. Oh, that's for the, that's the content the people crave. Yeah, it's for our Dairy Public Radio picnic where. <laughs> uh, Welcome to the Dairy Public Radio <laughs> Kite Cast. <laughs> Where CM has to eat raw corn on the cob. So, oh my god. All right. Okay. Earlier we talked about how Stephen King sets up all this tragedy and he doesn't he doesn't surprise us with it. He foreshadows. And I thought that the way he we come into this chapter with Gage's death really reflects that and makes it that much harder to deal with because we don't get this beat by beat, um, chronologically ordered scene of how Gage dies. We come right into the funeral. I was really glad for that. I really enjoyed the the jumping forward to the funeral and then kind of seeing where they've ended up and now we kind of see how they got there. Ellie is carrying around a picture of her and Gage, her pulling him in a sled and she's like completely mute. Rachel has lost all concept of time and space and is just kind of out of it. And Lewis keeps replaying the accident over and over in his head. And in that replay, we find out that Gage was was playing the game of run away from mom and dad. And they yell for him to stop. And I, I, he even talks about like his his tiny chubby legs. Any other day of the year would have given out under his run and he would have fallen. Or he would have tripped. Would have tripped something. His uncoordinated child body would have not made it to the road. But it does. He runs right out in front of a truck on a Saturday morning and and that's it. Well, and this is so hard to read because Lewis, he's still running after him when this truck hits him and the truck's, you know, trying to stop obviously and kind of veering off the road and Lewis is running and he runs past Gage's shoe. God. And he ugh. keeps running and then he runs past his jumper which has been turned inside out from the impact and he keeps running and then he sees his baseball cap and it's filled with blood. It made me so sad I wanted to puke. I This is one where I had to pause and be told that it wasn't a real little boy. <laughs> I, yeah, I straight up was like crying reading this description. So they have the funeral and Rachel doesn't go to the morning viewing because Steve Ma uh, Masterson, the tennis guy, I think he works in Lewis's office. Right? Yeah. yeah, they're buddies. He comes over and he sees... How bad Rachel is, how bad Ellie is, and how Lewis is not seeing any of this. 
And so he's trying to help out and he's like, okay, she's not going to the visitation. She'll go in the afternoon if she can get herself together and get ready because she's not even showered or anything. She'd come down and she was like misbuttoned and and nothing made sense. When they finally get her out, like they, they have lunch before they go back for the afternoon visitation. And that scene where they're in the the diner and she just like full on breaks down and everyone Judd and Steve are just staring at Lewis like, are you going to comfort your wife? No. And he nope. (laughs) No, he's not. That was hard. That That was fucking rough. This was the point. um, I was really thinking about it. And I know at the start of our first Pet Cemetery episode, I kind of came after Lewis. Like I was like, he's kind of a dick, right? It was at this, he is maybe the most complex king protagonist we've had. Possibly the most interesting protagonist. I would argue that Annie Wilkes. Okay. I take <laughs> a seat back. Words, CM. <laughs> words have meaning, CM. <laughs> protagonist means protagonist. <laughs> Stand by what I said. <laughs> <laughs> but he's so real. His whole family, they are, they feel like real people. Yeah. Uh, Lewis, he is kind of a dick. He's prideful. But he also, he we've seen him be so caring. He he really truly loves his family. And then seeing him go through this pain and Although he loves his wife so much, seeing this pain, he's internalized it so much, possibly because of the pet cemetery. Uh, a man's heart is stonier. Mm-hmm. He's he's keeping his pain to himself, and he can't make himself soft enough to comfort his wife. It's so painful. It's so real. It's so human. Now, okay, so we're back at the funeral, and Irwin his father-in-law, starts some shit. Fuck his parents. Fuck Holy his parents. Shit. He <laughs> so smugly tell, goes to Lewis and is like, this is all, I, I didn't know this specific thing was going to happen, but I knew something like this was going to happen because of who you are as a person. Oh, well, what the fuck, dude? This is at the, at the second, at the, the afternoon, afternoon visitation. visitation. Because uh, this chapter starts out with, there's, uh, you know, uh, the crying that we, we find out that Gage is dead and all of this. But it starts out with the Lewis saying the the problems really started in the morning before uh, I got into a fist fight with Rachel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and man, I was looking forward to that and was not disappointed. No, he socks Irwin right in the face. Yeah. because And then Rachel jumps in and is like, don't hit my dad. And then Irwin starts kicking him in the ribs and she's like. Go ahead. And I then guess they <laughs> knock the coffin down, yeah. and he and they start this fight because Irwin tells Lewis that he told Rachel this that yeah. this would have never happened. You know, he had to marry this so loser, and I felt bad in this moment because I wanted him to kick his ass. I wanted Lewis to kick Irwin's ass. Yep. Yes. It, but it was not satisfying. It was it so was, painful. It showed the futility of it. It's just. Two grieving men, two yeah. hurt men, that it, it's not a, really a justified fight as much as he deserved to get punched yeah. in the mouth. Well, Lewis was ready to put things 
behind them and he even, you know, tries to shake his hand and he won't, Erwin won't have none of it. Mm-hmm. And so shitty. It's so shitty, but he does in the middle of this fight, the, the, uh, sawhorse or whatever that the casket is resting on gets knocked askew and the casket starts to fall. And we know from what is said earlier that Rachel had to be drug away from this uh, this afternoon mm-hmm. viewing, screaming. There is a point where the casket falls and hits the ground, and the lock on the casket snaps. My heart stopped. I wrote in enormous letters, triple underlined, Oh no! <laughs> because I thought... A corpse was going to enter. One hundred percent the same. Fortunately, that does oh, not thank happen. God, it doesn't happen. He, he does Imme- see impeccable uh, taste there, Mister King. Uh, <laughs> you made the right choice. He does see a glimpse of skin, mm. like Gage's hand, but the casket falls in such a way that it it does it not closes. pop open. It's closed. Oh, it just the thought that it could have happened was enough. Mm-hmm. Then that night, uh, Lewis gets fucking hammered. Gets real fucking hammered. And he even thinks to himself that that moment of when are you going to do it already? Like mm-hmm. he thinks that to himself. He gets drunk. He uh, uh, Ellie makes a comment like that. She won't let go Gage's picture because he could come back. She and tells him she tells Lewis, I'm going to wish really hard and pray to God for Gage to come back. Yeah. You so, don't want that. No, Ellie. no you don't. <laughs> oh, you, you think sometimes you do. dead is better. Oof. So after he gets super hammered and he he goes to the door, opens it, and Judd is standing right on the other side of the door. And my first thought was, is he here to stop him or is he here to help him? I honestly thought he might have a shovel and pickaxe in his hand. I thought that might be it. But he is there to stop him. He tells him the story of Timmy Baderman because he finally says, yes, yes, someone did bury a person his name was Timmy Baderman. He died overseas, and his dad, Bill, used the burial ground to bring him back to life. Mentions that Bill had lost his wife and their other, tile, uh, their other child. And I like that Judd points that out, like, he had no one. You know, you have these people. Mm-hmm. He had no one. They get the body, uh, have the funeral four or five days afterwards. The mail carrier, Margie, just sees Timmy walking down the street. Mm-hmm. Seems a little odd. She goes and like quits her job and is like, (laughs) nope, not going back there. Never in a million years. Other people see Timmy around. Also, like it word gets to everybody in the town. Basically, they talk about that. His eyes are are beady and they're they're dead. And he shambles around like he's drunk and just so unnerving. And then someone writes a letter to the war department that Timmy is alive and they're going to send somebody out because they think that they, he faked his death. And so he's like committing treason. Basically he went AWOL and Judd and a few other people like the, the head of the post office and then like an alderman or like city councilman, uh, they all go to the Baderman house to see bill to be like, Hey, this is, Somebody's going to come out here. They're going to see him. We all know what you did. Everyone's so matter of fact. Yeah. That 
adds to how fucking scary this is. Do you guys agree? Yeah, yeah 100%. Well, this has been going on and everybody knows about the cemetery. And that's so terrifying that it's not big news. Sure. That it's not spread. It's not like everywhere. But everyone knows it. They just don't talk about it. Well, them. and because of that, you know, Stony Heart thing, so far it's only men. No, because Norma knows. Yeah. That's right. Because Norma says when when they gather up this posse to go see Timmy and Bill Baderman, uh, who nailed it, um, (laughs) uh, Norma pulls Judd aside and she says, now you don't go messing around. You make sure that what needs to be done needs to be done because that's an abomination. If something goes south, you get your butt out of there. You leave those guys behind if you have to because Timmy is not right. No, they... They tell Bill they need to take care of it. Bill basically says, fuck everything and everyone. I've got my son back. God never helped me. I helped myself. Yep. And Timmy knows things. Things he cannot, could should not, not know. Possibly know. Only bad things, too. And he, Like, twist ending, Judd loves whores. <laughs> <laughs> loved. Loved in the past oh, tense. Oh, up to eight years ago? Love, that's oh, past that's tense. Oh, that's better. That's past tense. Come on, Judd. I'm not even going to. Come on, Judd. Can't we have one nice thing? He had to have something terrible to be said to him. True. Sometimes you need some strange. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 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 Next time CM's on a a horror trading card, that's the quote we're going to put on there. Wait, was he seeing horrors or horses? (laughs) (laughs) he really loves horse hair Timmy knew I loved going to horse houses (laughs) (laughs) a call back a call back to the long walk so when Timmy turns his voice has changed it's a voice they don't recognize and it's mean and he basically like says all of their deepest darkest secrets and the guys get the hell out of there they run and Later, they find out that, well, first of all, all of those men's lives fell apart immediately after. Uh, one of the guys, uh, like, it, it exposed some fraud that he'd committed as part of the post office, and he lost the only job he ever cared about. Um, I don't remember what happened to the... He got estranged from his family, because his, yes. his favorite nephew only wanted his money or something like that. Right. Uh, and then, Honestly, he sounds like he got off easy. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Come on. Isn't though he's the one who lost a leg too, so oh, well. he got something. But it turns out that Bill ended up shooting Timmy in the head, pouring oil all over the house, striking a match, and then shooting himself in the head and burning the house down. And that Judd says that the the pet cemetery has this power. We go back to this power, and he's worried that that power made forced Judd to take him there to show him that. And that now the cemetery has its hooks deep in Lewis and he regrets ever even bringing it up. And he thinks that because he took him there, that's why Gage died. Not -hmm. that the cemetery knew Gage was going to die and so wanted to get its hooks in him, but it opened some sort of door to this happening, which just killed me reading that. A door covered in dead ivy. <laughs> exactly. Revival callback. <laughs> uh, well, they, they have this talk and Judd goes home and Lewis is thinking all of this over. 
Luckily, none of this ever happened. Yeah, yeah. thank God none of yeah. this ever happened. This was, Ooh. anybody who's ever lost someone, pet or person, doesn't matter. I, I have had this feeling where you're just imagining this perfect world where this tragic thing didn't happen and everything's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, luckily, that's the real world. Yeah. Because the next chapter starts with, uh, the, but Gage, none of that happened. Gage, Gage is fine. Gage is fine. Yeah, so Lewis grabs Gage at the last moment, and they all, you know, cry, and everything's mm-hmm. okay, and they have that, like, oh, thank God. panic, yeah. horrible panic moment Ooh. where they're yelling at him, but they're happy, and they're crying. Gage gets older. He goes to school. He's a great swimmer. He meets a girl. He converts to Catholicism. <laughs> he goes to John Hopkins, makes the Olympic swimming team. He gets a gold medal, and turns out to be a dream that Lewis is having, which ends what? in a nightmare. Wait. Because no, what? <laughs> I stopped reading when he won the gold medal. <laughs> oh that, no, man! You should have kept reading. Yeah, what? That wasn't the end of the, the chapter. So, That's not the end of the book. <laughs> no, him and Rachel—they're watching Gage win his medal on TV, and he's—he tips his head back, and his swimming cap is full of blood, just like his baseball cap. And Lewis wakes up, and like is rocking himself, sobbing in the bathroom, and he thinks to himself. I would do anything for a second chance. Anything at all. Hoof. That. That's. How did we end part two on that chapter? Perfectly, I guess, because it is a rough, rough way to go. I can't imagine what the rest of this book is. Well, I mean, I've got a good idea, (laughs) Uh, but I'm. Ooh, I'm real scared, guys. Me too. And I can't wait to get into it. Oh, I'm going to go home and read it like as soon as we're done. Perfect. Well, that is it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you so much for listening. Join us for our next episode for part three of The Pet Cemetery, where we will be reading the rest of the book. For Benjamin Graham and CM Alexander, I'm Joshua Kahn, reminding you that it's probably wrong to believe there can be any limit to the horror which the human mind can experience. Hey everyone, Sam Alexander here. This depressing and tear-filled episode is brought to you by our friends, The One Dollar Producer Project. This is an artist fund whose purpose is to give creators more opportunities without shouldering the financial burden alone. For only a dollar a month, you can help produce up-and-coming artists' live shows, art shows, films, and so much more. Find the $1 Producer Project on Patreon. And find us on Patreon, too. We want to give a special thank you to our amazing supporters, Jeremy Marr and Reed Flynn, our studio engineer and very first pledge, Alicia Lillian, our station manager, Bryant Burnett, and, holy crap, our very first Cartel member, Phil. You are all the absolute best. And if you prefer not to spend any money but still want to support us, We're so grateful for your iTunes reviews. I've said this before, we're not part of a network and people find us through your reviews. As always, find us on Facebook or Instagram at Dairy Public Radio or Twitter at Dairy Public and send us an email at dairypublicradio at gmail.com. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.